Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondak. And today I'm speaking to Jeffrey Pomerantz, the author of Metadata, which is part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge Series. Jeffrey Pomerantz is an information scientist. He was most recently associate professor in the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he developed and taught the massive open online course, Metadata, Organizing Discovering Information, and a visiting professor at the University of Washington. Jeffrey Pomerantz, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you for having me. Now, before I read your book, I knew a little bit about metadata. You know, I write the descriptions for the feed on the podcast, I maintain a few web pages. So I guess at a core idea, I kind of knew what metadata was, but it's obviously much bigger than I've realized. Uh, is my reaction common when you talk about metadata to people? It is common, yes. Um, but I'll tell you what's more common is actually having people's eyes glaze over very quickly. Um, <laughs> Obviously, I think metadata is super interesting, but um, metadata is important, but it is one of the least sexy things imaginable. I mean, to be fair, most people nowadays have heard the word metadata. Um, until about two years ago, it was kind of a jargony term that was used mostly only in library science and information science. Most normal people had never come across the term. And then Edward Snowden happened, right? And the word metadata started getting used in the news. Journalists were throwing it around. So at least most people have heard it, read it somewhere, um, even if you, know, you don't have a complete sense of what it's all about. Um, but a lot of people, like yourself, create metadata uh, just in the ordinary course of you know, doing the work that you do, and sometimes without even realizing that that's what you're doing. I mean, anyone who's ever written like you say, a description for a podcast or, you know, a description for anything, really, a blurb for a book, description for, you know, YouTube video. If you've reviewed something on Amazon, you've created metadata. Um, it's, it's just everywhere sort of embedded in our environment uh, broadly. Uh, but this is just one type of metadata, uh, what's called descriptive metadata, which is actually exactly what it sounds like. It's just metadata that describes a thing, and it's probably the most common type of metadata out there. Um, and it's just, like I say, it's in, embedded in, in our environment in so many ways that we don't even think about it. Um, one of the examples that I used in my book is the blurb on the back of the book itself. Right? You see a book in a bookstore – Chances are, before you buy the book, you're going to pick up, pick it up, read the blurb on the back, and decide if it sounds interesting enough to you know spend your money on and buy it. Uh, that blurb helps you make a decision about whether you want to read the whole thing. Um, the blurb is descriptive metadata. It stands in for the book under certain conditions like the buying decision. Right. The point is you expect a blurb when you pick up a book. It would be weird not to have one. Right? It would be weird if a book didn't have a bunch of different pieces of descriptive metadata. If a book didn't have a title or an author on the front cover, that would be strange. Right? That kind of descriptive metadata has just become a cultural norm. Um, you know, I, could, I could give you a million examples. When you check your email, uh, the first thing that you probably see is a list – that includes a couple pieces of descriptive metadata, right? Who sent it, 
the subject line, probably also the date and time it was sent. And only then do you click on one and go through to the full text of the email, right? Email interfaces are just designed to present descriptive metadata first before you get to the content of the message. Um, and all of these different types of metadata serve different purposes. Uh, the type of object being described is different. The different, different types of users might use the metadata. Different organizations might maintain it, mine it for different business uses, whatever. Um, but really, our entire modern IT environment is designed to use metadata to sort of encourage us to create metadata in a variety of ways or create it for us automatically and then present it to us as a as a proxy for more complex information objects um, descriptive metadata is probably the most common thing that you didn't even realize that you were ignoring but from the book, I understand it's not so much the metadata itself, which, I mean, when I create metadata for this show or other shows I've done or on a web page I maintain, it seems pretty innocuous. It's the fact that individuals can come to conclusions from different sorts of metadata. And as you point out, certain executive actions can be taken on metadata, which is funny because it's just describing other data. Yes. Um, and... Once you start going down that road, what become what is data and what is metadata is really more a matter of opinion um, than anything. Uh, you know, I'm talking about you know, a, books make for nice examples because we're used to uh, books as objects and we're used to metadata about books in the form of you know library records or Amazon records or something. So they make for a nice example. But um, what is the metadata about a book, a Amazon record about a book, is to Amazon just operational data. Right? They don't necessarily think of it as metadata. They think of it as an, a data object in their database. So um, what is considered data and what's considered metadata is more a use case than anything objective. You talked in that answer and also your previous answer about library science, and you were trained as a library scientist. And you make it pretty clear in the book that there is a, a very strong relationship between library science and metadata. So when we start thinking about the Internet Revolution, say, beginning in the early 90s, uh, when did data managers start realize that they're going to start needing to develop metadata in order to facilitate the growth of the Internet? Um, about 30 seconds in. Um, LAUGHTER I, I'd actually argue that metadata was inevitable once computers were invented. I mean, even before the web came into existence, once there were computers, metadata was was inevitable. Um, and uh, there's a history with libraries and metadata, um, and I don't want to make it sound at all like uh, metadata is something that is exclusively you know, library-centric. It's just the libraries got there first, right? Libraries had this need that led to the invention of metadata before really anyone else um, because libraries are fundamentally really large collections of information objects. Um, the Library of Alexandria had a collection of scrolls, you know, what, 2,000 plus years ago. And they also had what today we would call a catalog, 
of all of the the items, all the scrolls in their collection. Uh, and that catalog contained things that are you know familiar to any library user now. Things like the name of the author, description of the contents, etc. Uh, so in terms of thinking through how to manage a large collection of stuff, libraries just got there first. Um, but once computers were invented, suddenly we are able to create large collections of, of digital stuff as well. right? And once you've got a large collection of stuff, whatever that stuff is, it's just impossible to keep all of that in your head. You need some way to boil it down. You need some small description of those objects uh, to help you, first of all, find a specific item in a large collection, and second, help you decide if that, that specific thing is, is going to be useful to you, right? Because you don't want to have to read an entire book to decide if you really want to read the entire book. Um, and it's the same with, with digital files, right? You don't want to have to access a file to decide if you really want it. Um, you know, when computers were first invented, uh, it was a hassle to access data. You had to load up a roll of magnetic tape or, you know, load up a big stack of punch cards or something. It was in labor intensive, you know, just to load a store of data. So very quickly, Indexes were developed to uh, provide links to individual items in a data store and provide a little bit of data about the data that you have access to. Um, so on top of that, right? once you have computing, your collection is basically invisible. Right? In a library, stuff is at least on the shelves and visible in front of you. You can move physically through the space. Um, and with computer storage, it's all invisible, right? Stuff is just stored in memory somewhere, which makes it even that much more difficult to get a handle on it. Uh, nowadays, of course, it's not labor-intensive at all to get access to data. I mean, we have access to more than we can use, you know, in our entire lifetimes. But uh, very quickly after the web, you know, as we know it now, came into existence, you saw the rise of search engines. And fundamentally, what a search engine is, is a giant store of metadata about information objects on the web, right? When you're searching Google, I mean, Google came a little bit later to the, to the party of the web, but, you know, let's use Google as an example. You're searching through Google's index of data, about information objects on the web, right? You're searching through descriptive metadata about the stuff that's out there. And it works that way because the web is just huge and it takes a lot less time to search through even a very large index like what Google's searching through than the entirety of the web. Um, it's just a matter of boiling stuff down for efficiency. So finally, we uh, talked a little bit earlier about Edward Snowden. Did Snowden happen too early for the 2016 election? And what I mean by that is that since it was such a big <laughs> thing a few years ago, that yeah. now that here in the U.S. we're coming up on a major election, that that yep. people are, are – he's now kind of moved to the past enough that perhaps the political importance of metadata and having a discussion in the public realm about – what the government can and can't do with metadata. Because, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of a dodge. It's like, well, I'm not really getting it. I don't know what the phone call was about. But as you point in your book, you, so you don't really need necessarily to know what the phone call is about. With enough metadata, 
people will make jump into conclusions about it. So, what would you, what kind of discussion would you like to see coming up in 2016? And do you think we'll have it in the United States? I would be very surprised if we have that conversation during the election cycle, which is unfortunate, really. Um, I do think Snowden happened slightly too early because. There have been an awful lot of court cases, even um, within the past six months, uh, that are really fallout from uh, from the Snowden document release. Uh, back in May, a judge—I mean, May of this year, right—a judge ruled that the NSA had overstepped what was allowed under the Patriot Act in their data collection, right? In other words, that particular judge ruled that the data collection that the NSA was engaging in with phone metadata was illegal. And then last month, a different court overturned that decision, right? And in the meantime, in June, I believe it was, the Senate passed the USA Freedom Act, which changed the way the federal government collects this data anyway, Right. And all this is only in the past six months. Right. So there's a lot happening with this in the courts and, and policy uh, discussions in Washington. But and, you know, if you pay attention to this kind of news, it's it's all over the news. Uh, but it's not a public discussion in the forgive me for using this term, but in the popular press, the way Snowden was. So I would be surprised if this comes out uh, in a big way in the presidential election, um, which is a shame, really, because it's one of the most important legal and policy issues on the table right now, I think. Um, and actually, there are two issues here, and the first is is data collection by businesses, um, now, every business that we do business with these days collects an awful lot of personal data about us, um, sometimes called data exhaust, right? The idea is it, it's data that is produced just kind of as a byproduct of the ordinary everyday activities that we do um, online and, and offline, really. And businesses use that for personalization of their services, right? And we use those services. We vote with our wallets. So businesses use that kind of data exhaust. Um, ultimately, that's an issue of business practice and ethics. And then the second issue is data collection by government, right? For example, like the Snowden documents showed, the NSA's collection of phone metadata. And, and of course, there's overlap, right? The NSA got a lot of its phone metadata from Verizon, which is a corporation, so you can't really separate these two. But, you know, let's talk about uh, government data collection since we're talking about the election, right? It's, this is really a matter of constitutional law. Um, a lot of privacy law is derived from the Fourth Amendment, right, which is, you know, the unreasonable search and seizures amendment. Um, and that has been interpreted broadly to include digital files. Um, however, there is this thing called the third-party doctrine, which comes out of some court cases in the 60s and 70s, which says that the information that you voluntarily give to third parties is not private. Um, third parties originally back in those court cases in the 60s and 70s meant the phone company, right? The third-party doctrine says that data, 
the data that you give to the phone company to set up service can be collected by law enforcement without a warrant, right? If the police want to tap your phone, if you're a suspect in some case, they need a warrant, right? Which means making the case to a judge, demonstrating that a phone tap is, is justified, etc. But metadata can be obtained without a warrant. Um, so the third-party doctrine is kind of a loophole in, in these Fourth Amendment protections. Now, fast forward, you know, 40 years, there are tons of services out there that you provide lots of data to, right? Not just the phone company, but your cell phone provider, ISPs, and literally every company on the web where you've ever set up an account, which, you know, is dozens or hundreds for most of us, right? I mean, how many passwords do we have? Um, and because of the fact that we produce data exhaust all the time, doing basically everything, just going about our daily business, there's been a lot of discussion in legal and policy circles about the changing the third-party doctrine, whether the third-party doctrine is still appropriate in the modern digital age. Um, but I'd be very surprised really if any of that becomes much of an issue in the elections. Um, I mean, Snowden was a, a big story because while all of this data collection on the part of business and government had been, of course, going on for years, it was still something of a surprise for most people because we don't think about it, but also because he had, in the end, engaged in espionage, right? It was... It was a big story, but the fallout is less exciting in some ways. I mean, I said at the beginning, metadata is super unsexy. Um, honestly, what I predict is not that this will be an, a big issue in the elections, but eventually some version of this will end up before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court will have to rule on Fourth Amendment constitutionality of uh, federal data collection. And if I had to speculate, I would guess that that's going to happen under the next president on a short timeline. Um, but I'd be surprised if that's an, an issue that uh, our current batch of presidential candidates decide is going to get them much traction. Jeffrey Pomerantz, the author of Metadata, part of the MIT Press's Essential Knowledge Series. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you very much. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2015, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.